and get them ready. Of course, Hebrews chapter 10, verse, beginning of verse 23, we've been in that for the past few weeks. But um, also, if you want to get ready, look up Ephesians chapter 4. That's Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. All right, maybe just touch on a little bit of where we've been the past couple of weeks. Give us a context. In Luke 18 and verse 8, Jesus asks a very important question. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's Luke 18 and 8. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Look. At his return, Jesus isn't going to be looking to see whether we built a great society or achieved world peace through his gospel or in his name. He's going to be coming, and in his own words, he's going to be looking for something, and he said, I'm going to be looking to see if there's faith on earth. Now, when Jesus asks about faith on earth, he's not talking about believism. He's not saying, when I come, am I going to find people who believe in me? And I want you to bear in mind that the Bible teaches that even the devil believes in Jesus. He may not trust him as Savior, he's not able, but he believes in him. So when the Lord says, when I come, will I find faith on earth? He's not saying, will I find people who believe in, in me? What he's saying is he's saying, will I find people who are living in an active faith? And that faith Jesus described in several places, one of which was in, in Mark 11, 22 and 23, says, Have the faith of God, for whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be removed, be cast into the sea, not doubt in his heart, but believe that those things which he says will come to pass. He'll have whatsoever he says. And several other places indicate for us that the, the faith that God's looking for is a faith that moves mountains, a faith that has God's authority operating through it, a faith that, that implements the things that God wants to see implemented through His kingdom. And that's why He says, you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. So He's coming to see, are there people that are going to be operating in faith? Well, if you're going to have faith that moves mountains, you've got to have a life in you that God can move. If God can't move you, you're not going to move mountains with your faith. The faith that moves mountains has God's authority in it, and that means you're under His authority. That when the, when the Word of God and the Spirit of God is urging and moving, and the Word of God is laying that lamp before your feet, you're obedient. When the Spirit of God says, walk this way, you walk that way. When He says, don't go this way, you don't go that way. You listen to the Lord. And in, in being led by the Spirit, you are living a life that can support the faith that can speak to mountains. We know that mountains don't move because of our ability to believe. Mountains move because we believe God is speaking to that mountain. And when we operate and speak that word in faith, don't doubt in our heart, believe that what we say will come to pass, then... Like Peter who said, silver and gold have I none, such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. As he takes the layman by the hand, the man's healed. That mountain will move. So we have to be able to be moved. So why did I say all this? It's because I believe that the thing that Jesus is concerned with is when he comes back, is he going to find a church? Is he going to find people? Is he going to find you and me in a condition, living a life, where faith, real faith, is operating in our life. There's something about the end time world, there's something about the end time society and the culture of the last days that's going to threaten that faith in the lives of Christians. Something about the culture and the world that we live in today that's going to threaten to kill, to stifle, and to overthrow that active faith, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to be ready to stand against it. And so with that in mind, that first scripture I gave you to look up was Hebrews chapter 10, where I believe that the author of Hebrews lays out the four footers of the house of faith. The foundation of faith no other man can lay other than 
what was laid. Jesus Christ laid it. But it sits on four footers. Those four footers support the house of faith. And this morning I want to share with you the fourth or the last footer. And let's just quickly read that verse of Scripture and then I'll, I'll mention the first three that we've gone over already. And then we'll get into number four. Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful who promised. Let us consider how to provoke or to stir one another to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Here's the end time exhortation. And so much more as you see the day approaching, the day of the Lord's return. So there's something about the day of the Lord's return that although we don't know when it's going to be, there are certain indicators that are going to be evident in society, evident in the world, that we can look at and we can say that the coming of the Lord is near because these are things Jesus warned were going to happen. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, In the last days, in the last times, perilous times will come. And there's a terrible list of social ills. Men are lovers of their own selves, covetous, proud, boasters, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, fierce, incontinent, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Of such, he said, are those that creep into houses leading away silly women. Sorry, girls. Paul wrote that. Silly women laden with various lusts, he said, from such turn away. Obviously, I've read that verse a couple of times. But there's a warning about the last days and the instability, uh, the coldness of society, that if Christians aren't careful and they allow that culture in the last days to, to guide and to define how they live, it'll kill faith. Faith will not be... There's, faith survives in an environment. Just like Adam could not survive when he left the environment of faith and obedience in the presence of God, when he stepped out of the garden into a cursed world, that intimacy with the Lord didn't follow him. And God sent Jesus Christ to reinstate and reunite us with him. In the same way, he could not rule and reign, though he was designed and formed. Man was made to rule and reign in life. For 6,000 years, we've lived as prisoners, captives, as defeated foes, not ruling and reigning, but being ruled by the devil. And yet we were designed to rule and reign and have dominion over the earth. We cannot have that dominion outside of the environment God created us in any more than a fish can fly in the air or the great eagle can do its glory and soar in the midst of the sea. Your glory only works in the environment that God created for it. So even though God has designed into you a faith that can operate, if you leave that environment and you enter a hostile environment, that environment for Adam, that environment for you and I is the presence of God. Living in His Word, living in His presence is where the glory moves. If you or I were to go out fishing today and catch a beautiful snook, out of, the, out of the skinny waters there out in the barrier islands and take it and throw it up into the air to see if it would swim through the sky. It would be a pathetic, ugly sight as it splats back down on the water again. But you put it in its environment, it does its thing. So here in Hebrews, there are four footers to the foundation of faith. There are four foundations, four pieces of the foundation that the house of faith sits upon, that gives the environment for that faith to survive in the last days. We've already gone through um, three of them. The first one was, hold fast the profession of your faith. As the, as the end draws near, the conditions of society are going to be such that the ability to hold fast to the confession of faith is going to be undermined. And we talked about that the first week I shared this, so I won't re-preach it. But the second thing was, it goes on and says, the second foundation, the second footing, is consider how to provoke or to stir one another. 
consider one another, to stir and provoke one another. The rules of society today that govern offending people make it nearly impossible to exhort people in church. If we succumb to society's rules, you can't confront one another. You cannot challenge people because they get offended. You're offending somebody. And so, so much more as we see the day approaching, we need to bear down and be faithful to provoke and to stir one another, which leads us to the third footing, stir one another to love and to good works. Now, ordinarily, that would be simple. We would open the Bible and we'd see what God who is love says love is. Love flows from Him, and that's how we see what love is. What are good works? Well, we simply look at what Jesus did, and we see His grace, and we see grace flowing, and we know that's what good works are. But in the end time culture and in the last days, society begins to dictate what love and good works are. And the, the church needs to be very careful. Christians need to be very careful to not allow either society or compromised churches that have left pleasing God in favor of pleasing people. Don't allow yourself to be dictated to by the world out there as to what love and good works are. God knows what love is and what good works are, and you stay faithful to that. It brings us now to the fourth footing. If you're going to have a solid footing for faith to survive in the last days, this fourth piece needs to be in place. And he says... In the 25th verse of Hebrews 10, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Well, obviously this morning you didn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together because here you are, praise the Lord. There's a reason why you're here. We might want to talk about it a little bit. But let me tell you that the fourth footing is fellowship together as the body of Christ, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Why is the assembling of ourselves together as the body of Christ important? Now, obviously, for most of you, it's important because I see you every week. You just keep coming back. We can't seem to get rid of you. There's something about it that's significant, and I hope that its significance is what's really motivating you. But well, we need to, we need to uh, probably re-examine what is significant about gathering together. Why is it important? And why does the Bible warn us that especially in the society of the last days, many are going to habitually stop fellowshipping and pull back? And there's a reason why that's going to happen. The first reason why our gathering together is significant and why it's important is because God is communal. He may be personal. He may be my God. He may be your God. But He is communal. The word communal comes from the word family. God is about family. The Bible says in, uh, I think it's the 68th Psalm, where the Scripture says that, uh, that He gathers the uh, broken the downcast, and he puts them in families. In the New Testament, the Bible says that uh, he is the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. The Bible says we are a family. In fact, it says we are the body of Christ. So God is communal. We are members of a body. We're not pieces of a collection. So our worth and our value is both individual and personal, but it's also collective. Our value is seen and experienced when we come together. There's that synergistic effect that takes place when we assemble as the body of Christ. And I'm not going to get into it today, but you may want to review that great section of Scripture where Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, and he says that we're all members of the body, and the eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Or the hand can't say to the elbow, I don't need you. We're all members of a body. So God is communal. We're members of a body, not pieces of a collection. Therefore, let's sum this up and say, God works through His body. There's a reason right there for why 
fellowship together is significant because God works through our communion together in Him. And that brings me to our second section of Scripture, and that's Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. This is probably, the, probably arguably the greatest statement about the, the purpose and the function of church, God's concept of church, the local church, what we are here at Faith Christian Church, and churches throughout this city and all up and down this county. This is God's template, His statement about why church is significant and what ought to be happening. This is the governing constitution, what I'm about to read to you, for the body of Christ. So listen carefully. Verse 11. And God gave some apostles. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or the pastors and teachers to equip the saints. That's you. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness, in deceitful schemes, but rather we're brought together in the body of Christ, as the body of Christ, but rather we're brought together so that we may speak the truth in love and are to grow up, to mature in Him in every way, grow up into Him who is the head, even Jesus Christ. From Him, the whole body, and listen to this, because this verse 16 really just brings it together. From Him, the whole body joined and held together by every joint. Everyone say joint. joint. By every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. That's the constitution of the body of Christ. That is what God wants to see happening. That's what should be driving the church, is that from Jesus, as we gather, we are being held together, built up, strengthened, hallelujah, and uh, strengthened by every joint. Put your hands together like that. That's a joint. Y'all, if you're wondering what a joint is, some of you, some of you, uh, never mind. Uh, at any rate, glory to God. That, that's God's joint right there. Hallelujah. Strengthened by every joint with which the body is equipped so that each part working properly in that joint causes the body to build itself up in love. So the idea here is that God has designed you with a part, a service, a gift to play. And the great potential for who you are, why you are, doesn't really begin to show itself until you find that joint that you're supposed to hook up with. Then, something great, wonderful, mysterious, synergistic, and powerful begins to arise out of your life. You may even be amazed you didn't know that that was in there. What drew it out? The joint. When you and your sisters and brothers in Christ are coming together in prayer, in service, in ministry, in worship, that joint begins to supply strength, not only to you, but to the entire body of Christ. You see, God has ordained His body to produce strength. Not just to receive strength, but to produce strength, to produce health. There shouldn't be churches that are filled with crippled bodies. Now, I'm not talking about physically crippled bodies. I'm talking about emotionally, mentally crippled. Should we be weak? Well, whether we should or shouldn't is really immaterial. The fact is we are. We are weak. 
in consideration of the trials that we face. Yes, of course we're weak. The Bible says, let the weak say that I'm strong and in the power of the Lord. The Lord wants to strengthen the weak. So it's not about you making yourself strong. It's about you joining. And when you join together, God's power begins to flow through your life and those others that you are joined up with. Somebody say praise the Lord if you know what I'm talking about. Look, the joint, and I'm going to use this term, the joint. We've met in the joint this morning. We've got the joint going on here. This is the joint. Somebody say praise the Lord. Up in this joint. So, the joint is where all this stuff happens. Becoming equipped to do God's work. Attaining the unity of the faith. Attaining the unity of the knowledge of Jesus. Attaining Christian maturity. Growing up. Coming together. Becoming strong. Becoming wise. Coming into one accord. Being directed by the Holy Spirit. Being lifted up in truth so that false teaching and false doctrine and silly notions and ideas don't find their way into your mind and begin to convince you. Now look, I realize that you can go into plenty of churches and, and find some really weird stuff. Some not such good doctrine, right? You can go into churches and find, you know, some strange stuff that people believe and, and, and uh, practice. Well, let me tell you where you find some really bizarre stuff. Go find Christians that have forsaken fellowship and they no longer are part of a joint, and they're out there, and they've been out there for a while, you'll find some really crazy stuff. Jesus and aliens, the zombie apocalypse. I mean, all kinds of crazy things. You get out of fellowship and out from under that synergistic anointing, and you lose that safety. You're not... You're not growing in the knowledge of God. You're just spinning and usually deteriorating. It's in that coming together that we're challenged and God is speaking His truth to the body and through the body. So, okay, let's say this. If Jesus is looking for faith on earth when He returns, He's going to start looking at the joint. He's going to come back and He's going to start looking for the joints. Where are the joints in clear water? Because that's where he expects to find faith on earth, is at the joint. So if we abandon the joint, it's pretty certain that faith, the kind of faith that moves mountains, is going to deteriorate in our life. So if you want to know the joy of living with a blessed faith, live in the joint. Live in the joint. And that's what the Word says. Live in the joint. Don't forsake the joint. Don't be occasional about the joint. Be consistent about the joint. Join up with the body of Christ. Your faith will begin to grow. Your knowledge of the Lord, the safety of the body of Christ will begin to be a blessing and your faith to move mountains will begin to make itself clear. You'll start seeing and feeling yourself moving forward in God. You'll become a part of that forward progress that God is making because He works through the body. God is familial. He's familial. So let's go back to our warning. Why is that warning there in verse 25? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but so much more exhorting one another. Exhorting what? Exhorting to stay in fellowship, stay in the joint. You can see people exhorting one another, come on man, stay in fellowship, don't break off, don't flake off. Um, the New English translation of the Bible has a way of putting this phrase in Hebrews 10.25 in a way that I thought was perfect. Listen to this, not abandoning our meetings as some are in the habit of doing. Not abandoning our meetings as the habit of some is. So I'm going at that this morning. That's where I'm going. I'm going after that because God's going after that. That's something 
that the Lord is warning in the body of Christ today. Don't let the devil drive you out of fellowship. Don't let your fellowship be, fall from first place into third or fifth or seventh place on the list because your faith won't survive. Now you're going to argue, and I don't blame you, I would too, and you're going to say, don't tell me my faith doesn't survive. Well, I'm not sure what surviving is really the mountain-moving faith that's going to see you through to the end. So listen carefully. Here's the question. What is it about the approaching day? What is it about the end-time culture? The world that we have obviously crossed over into, and I don't think that we are approaching the end days. We've crossed over into the end days. We have, we have fallen into the tractor beam of Bible prophecy. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to red blood moons or shemitas and stuff like that. And I'm not putting any of it down. I just don't pay attention to it. I don't really think that... Uh, that to me is not significant. What to me is significant is the bold, direct, scriptural things that Jesus said. Watch for this. You know, we sometimes ignore the freight train that's right in front of us looking for the secret little, you know, that you have to decode to figure out God's got a secret message hidden in this little cave off in, a, in the Himalayan mountains. Well, he's also got a great message in your nightstand drawer in the Bible. It's pretty in your face. It's pretty clear. And uh, Jesus said in the last days, perilous times will come and, and put some big descriptions. And many of those are descriptions of the society that we live in and, and the falling away that's going to take place in the body of Christ. I'd pay attention to those things. Um, so why is there a warning about the approaching day? What is going to happen in that approaching day that's going to cause Christians to abandon the joint? That's really the question. What's happening today that will cause eventually Christians to abandon the joint? The very communities where faith is nurtured and their faith thrives, why would they leave that? Why would they break away from that? What kind of thing would go on in a person's life that would cause that to happen? Well, you know, it's not a mystery that tons and tons of Christians bounce out of church, bounce out of churches, maybe after two or three different tries, because they've been ticked off by something. Offense, probably the biggest thing that drives people. They get offended, they get hurt. Now, I don't want to trivialize any, but some, some of the things that people get offended over are, are uh, legit. They have a legit cause. But my wife and I got saved, I don't know what, hun, 45 years ago, I guess, something like that. And, um, you know, we got what we used to call bone saved. Bone saved. You get saved right down to the bone. It's like you just, you know, you, you, you couldn't leave Jesus or stop fellowshipping with God's people if you, if you tried. You just, it's there. You know, you're committed to the joint. And, but I saw people who got saved right alongside me that I'd fellowship with, I watched them over the years drop off. And something would happen in their life and they would just quit fellowshipping. And I was, as an early Christian, I was just dumbfounded. It was like an anomaly to me. I, I didn't know Christians could do that. I didn't know such a thing could actually happen, that people would stop fellowshipping. It never really registered. I could never understand why would somebody let what someone else did or said Stop them from fellowshipping. You know, why do you let what other people do stop you from the very thing that God has said brings and produces life in you? And I know everyone's got their reasons, but the minute you produce that reason, you put it above Jesus. That becomes your Lord. That becomes your excuse for not making Jesus Lord of your life. Well, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. And you can see that people need to just keep their butt out of it. Because that's where all those problems are coming from. So, you know what? If we're asking the question, what's going to happen in the last days that will cause Christians to withdraw or to abandon the joint, to pull back out of fellowship, let's consider the question from Satan's perspective. 
Consider the question from the devil's perspective. It's very, very simple. The devil looks at it like this. To defeat an army, disrupt its headquarters. You know, you don't have to tack head on a million people. Just go to the head, just find a way to infiltrate the headquarters and disrupt communication. Disrupt the activity of the headquarters. Jesus said it like this. If, if you want a Bible verse, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. All you have to do is just drop a stink bomb in the church. People quit coming. Just disrupt the headquarters. The army will disband. It's a very simple strategy, and the devil uses it effectively. He's really going to be using it in the last day. Simply make church stink, and people will quit going. For whatever reason, something about it is unappealing. So that's his tactic. Just attack the joint and regardless of the potential in all the believers, they'll never come together to use it against him. And that's what he wants. If you're going to be saved, go to heaven, all right, he's written you off. He doesn't have you anymore. He's not going to drag you down into hell. Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Father owns you, so he's not trying to get you back. What's he trying to do? He's trying to keep you out of the joint. Because if you get into the joint with other people, guess what's going to happen? Fruit. People are going to get saved. Stuff's going to happen. The kingdom of God's going to expand. What's he trying to do? Get you to give up your salvation? No, he's trying to get you to not be a part of advancing the kingdom of God. So attack the joint. His tactic is very simple. When people's faith shrinks down to themselves... When your faith is about me, and just me staying saved, and me being fa uh, saved, and many Christians, uh, they don't even realize that, that it's happening, but their faith shrinks down to where the only things they're believing for, praying for, following Jesus for, have to do with themselves, their own life, how they feel, what's going on in their life. Again, not to minimize those things. You need to be doing well if you're going to help others and, and be a blessing. God certainly wants you to do well. But when your faith becomes only about you and it shrinks back to a, a me focus, when that happens, you're not going to see the significance of the joint. The joint is going to be unimportant to you because everything that's important to you is what you get and what helps you. You're not going to see extending yourself, and especially when you're weak and tired and don't want to go to the joint. You know, when, when you're a little spent and you only got a little bit of energy left, the last thing you want to do is to invest that energy in the joint. But see, God knows you plug that thing into the joint, you're not only going to get charged and powered, you're going to, people will be drinking from the saucer, man. You're going to overflow. Your saucer's going to be filled, and they're going to come out of the woods drinking out of the saucer. Praise the Lord. So that the Lord knows that's what's going to happen. But when people get me-oriented, eventually they abandon the joint because it's just too much energy, too much trouble, and they back off. So that's the devil's tactic. Um, when people become content, now hear me because this is, this is, tragically, this happens to mature Christians as well as immature Christians. But when... When you become content with a self-centered faith, a faith that's willing to live off the low-hanging fruit of easy believism. I only have to have faith that I've asked Jesus into my heart and I'm saved and so I know I'm going to heaven. I got my ticket. That's easy believism. Again, not to minimize that. Thank God the devil lost the soul he thought he had. You're going to be with Jesus. You're saved. Isn't that awesome? That's wonderful. Glory to God. Hallelujah. It's great. But if your faith is only for that, that easy believism, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm saved, I'm fine. You don't see any reason to extend faith beyond that. If the enemy can get you to that point, then, well, you see what's obvious. As I said, that you know, the joint is not a place for you. You're, you really don't see the importance of it. So what happens is a vicious cycle takes place in churches. 
And I'll take just a moment to describe the way it works. It's kind of like an equation. If churches abandon the joint, see a lot of churches notice that there's a lot of people that their faith, they're only interested in faith for themselves. And so if they become very numbers-minded, they want butts in those seats and they want people and they, they get the idea that we've got to appeal to people where they're at and we need to um, please them where they're at, then churches abandon the idea of the joint because they know that people don't like the joint. Look, I work two jobs. I've got a lot going on. I don't have time for the joint. Um, I'm just looking for a church man where I can come and bring my kids, drop them off. And where I can get, you know, a life-encouraging message and, and go on. That's it. If I, you know, I want to be able to go and like the music and, um, you know, friendly place and that sort of thing. You know, it's a kind of a low-hanging fruit sort of a desire. If, and that's fine. Thank God that people have that desire. They come through the door. That's wonderful. But see, you want to be the church that, that's all about the joint. And you stir them up and you encourage them. People don't realize there's more until you pull on them and draw them and say, look, man, you could be valuable. God, God's got a great purpose for you. Let's get you engaged in the body of Christ. Because they don't usually walk through the door knowing that. You know, God, God could use someone like me. Oh, man, you have no idea. You're his, you're his next great big prophet. Hallelujah. I mean, look at the people who, who were the first apostles. You know, Jesus didn't put applications out and then pick the cream of the crop. So, the, the point is that churches, once they begin to abandon the joint, they restructure themselves and they redesign the way they're set up and the way they appeal to people so that it's not about the joint. It's just about feeding you and keeping you a little bit encouraged and you come back next week and nobody ever enters the joint and has a bigger vision for the ministry and, and for God doing great things in their life. I was really thrilled when we started going to Africa years ago. I began to look through the body to see who could I take with me. And there were a lot of people I couldn't take just simply because physically it was very hard and, um, and just not physically feasible. But for people that it was physically feasible for, I was always thrilled to find people like Justin and Bobby and different ones that were, they were like, sign me up, man, I'll go. And especially after people had come back freaked out and said, well, I was all excited about going until I got there. You know, so, and they were, but they wanted to go. You know, they knew what they were getting themselves into. And, um, you know, so that joint appeals, has its appeal. So if churches abandon the joint, they produce consumers rather than givers. They appeal to people as consumers. You know, consumerism really is destroying the church today to a large extent. And it's funny because the destruction isn't so much that you don't see people coming into church. But the, the mentality of consumerism is that you appeal to what people want for themselves. And you make sure that you put all those things out front and you offer them. Well, I think we should be offering whatever we can to, to, uh, to glorify the Lord and to encourage and to help people. Absolutely. But all of that should work together towards the joint. All of it should work to get people to elevate and to rise up and to be givers, not consumers. So should we, make, should we be offering to help people? Absolutely. Should we be appealing to them? Yes but appealing to them to become givers, not become consumers. When people become consumers, they're eventually going to leave church. Because what happens to a consumer? Their mentality is, it's about me. And once they figure out it's about me, it's better to stay home and get a couple hours extra sleep than it is, why should I come out? I could just turn on the TV or, or get in front of the computer and I could have church on the internet when I'm ready and well-rested. Somebody say amen if you understand. So obviously the devil's end game with this strategy is that churches will abandon the joint, produce consumers rather than givers, and eventually they'll abandon the church. Now let me say this. Under normal conditions, the faith that the Lord has put in you, the faith that can move mountains, that faith normally cannot survive outside a church fellowship. 
I know everyone thinks that they can. But the faith will not survive outside of church fellowship. Outside of the joint, you're cut off from the working of the Holy Spirit in the body. Now people will argue and say, well, I'm not cut off from that. The Holy Spirit's with me. Having the Lord with you and being actively in the joint where He's working is not the same thing. Um, in that joint, there's direction and support through the body of Christ and God speaking. You know, that scripture that I read, I didn't dream that up. Paul wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that in the body, there is this unifying effect, the attaining of the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The Lord sends the fivefold ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, into the body. So God's there in the midst of the body, speaking to people and directing them. And they're moving on that right now current of what God is saying in His Word. That direction and that support is missing when you're not in fellowship. It's not happening out there um, at the Church of the Springs with Pastor Sheets. Um, Mission is lost. Mission is lost. When, 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 people, um, when people withdraw from fellowship, what quickly fades is the sense of mission. I've known a lot of believers who just started said, you know what, I need to chill out from church. This has just been too intense. It's really, and I said, okay, you know, I, I, uh, I, I get you, you know, whatever. Do what you need to do. I have never seen ever anybody withdraw from fellowship over a length of time without losing at some point their vision for mission. The mission ends. The mission shrinks to themselves. It shrinks in size till the only mission they have is to keep them saved. But when you step into the joint, man, there's a big picture. Big tent, big picture, big vision. Man, now I'm part of the Lord saving thousands and millions and reaching the world. Can you say amen? amen? Faith, when it loses its sense of necessity, it quickly fades. See, the problem is when people pull out of fellowship, faith falls from number one to like number five, number seven, somewhere down on the list. It's not that important. Faith cannot survive without being in first place. Let me say it to you again. Should God allow you to put him number four on the list of things you worship? Would he even settle for something like that? No, he's not going to settle. He should be number one. Here, the Lord our God is one God, him only shall you. Jesus said, worship and serve the Father only. So God will not tolerate being bounced even to Number two, position. You can't worship God in a number two position. The effects of worship are not going to come back on you. It won't, it won't happen. Worship won't take place unless he's number one. And this is a whole other message. I'd love to just go preach this. But uh, keep it in mind, sometime I will come back and preach it. The fact is, without being number one, it's not worship. If he's not number one, it's not real worship. Whatever you're doing, you could be singing, running around, kick the drums over, shouting, carrying on. You can do whatever you want to do. But if he's not number one, it's not whatever you're doing. It's a, you know, it's just a house party. It's not worship unless he's number one. When he's Lord, if you're worshiping him as Lord, he receives the worship, and your praise, your worship, receives his anointing moving. But the Spirit of God's not going to anoint a lie. He's not number two. He's number one. It's the same with faith. If faith isn't primary in your life, it's not going to survive because it can't survive in number two, three, or four position. It's got to be number one. You say, yeah, but there's, I got pressing things. I got bills to pay up. Man, I'm just one step ahead of this. I've, I, you know, I've got a straight, I've got my, my family needs a, a, some help. I've got to work on it. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to get in fellowship. You know, I just don't have time to give to all that. You put the kingdom of God first, Jesus said in, John, in Matthew 6, and all these other things will be added. If you don't, they won't. You're on your own. Now, that doesn't mean you can't maybe meet one or two of those needs on your own, but I, I guarantee your boat's going to get swamped. Nobody 
can succeed apart from putting the kingdom of God first. Can you say amen? amen. So usually Christians who abandon fellowship, they think they're doing fine. They think they're doing okay. But it's only because their vision or their view is, well, I'm okay. I'm, I still have Christ in my heart. I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. But that's because their vision has shrunk. They're not thinking about the potential of what God wants for them and what He wants to do through the joint when they get hooked up in the body of Christ. You see, God saved you for so much more than just that. So much more. So let's bring this thing to a close and let me read that verse in Ephesians 4 and 16 one more time. From Jesus, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Let me stop for a moment. When each part is working properly, how do you know that you're working properly? Where do we go in your life and say, is Glenn working properly? Is Beverly working properly? Better yet, Terry and John look in the mirror and want to ask themselves the question, are we working properly? Nick wants to look in the mirror and say, am I working properly? Am I doing this right? Am I working properly? Is God getting out of me what He put uh, me on the earth? Am I working properly? Where do I go to answer that question? What do I examine? Do I look at the hours I put into work? Do I talk to other people and say, do you like me? Uh, am, I, am I, you know, am I uh, having a good effect, you know, in my relationships with people? I mean, there's a number of places where we can look. Some people look at their, their checkbook to see how am I doing? Am I working properly? If they see debt and everything, they obviously think, well, I'm not working properly. Some people look at their physical condition. I'm, I'm out of shape. I'm, I, I have no energy. I, I, or I'm sick. I just come back from the doctors. I've, got, I've been diagnosed with cancer. And they disqualify themselves. They say, obviously, I'm not doing well. I'm not working properly. But none of those places are the places where you should be looking to see whether you're working properly. Whether you're working properly has nothing to do with whether you've got cancer or how much is in your checking account or what your bills are like or your job situation or if people like you. None of those things determine if you are working properly. The place where the answer to that question is, are you working properly? Are you being what you're supposed to be? The place is the joint. God looks at the joint that He's called you to and He says, is she engaged in the joint? Because that's where we find out if she's working properly. Now having said that, let me read that verse again and we'll finish the verse. From Jesus the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. Well, members of the joint this morning. I'd ask you to stand to your feet. And before we, yes, we're going to join up here in just a minute. Um, let me just, let me just leave you with this vision in your mind before we respond to this. The power to build up and the, the original Greek word that Paul used when he wrote this, edify, to build up, means to build a house. God is building a house called the body of Christ. And uh, you are His material, you're His workman, you're the person He's working through. He's called you to that joint. Well, guess what you're doing? Guess what God has called you to do? to build up the church, to build the body of Christ in love. Isn't it amazing that what the world cries out for, we need love, we need more love, we need to see love working. The Lord says, I give you the power to put love to work. I give you the power to bring the gifts of love and watch them work. Hallelujah. That's in you. That is your calling. That's your anointing. 
Where do we see you doing that in the joint when you join up together? You see, when you come out on a Wednesday night and you make friends with people praying with them, when you come on Sunday and worship, when you form bonds and relationships with one another, with people that ordinarily you might not have had an opportunity to get to know or you might not have made an effort to get to know, when you reach out beyond yourself to take somebody by the hand and not just take them by the hand but take them by the heart and say, let's worship Jesus together. There's a special bond. When I worship with you, when I pray with you, there's a closeness that I feel towards you. There's a way that I see you that I don't see other people in that way. I see you that way. You are special to me and I would take a bullet for you. I feel that connection. I feel that, that oneness. Why is that? Because the Jesus who did so much for me, you love him and he's in you. And when you and I cross the room to meet in the middle, we join up and we become one. That love, I feel that love, don't you? Amen. That love begins to work. That's what church ought to be about, is finding out what is love calling us to do. Let's come together and let's do that. Praying, worshiping, reaching out in whatever ways the Spirit of God says to reach out. But until we come together to be that joint, we're not going to know what that direction is that God wants. But that is our purpose. And that's what, the, that's what the writer of Hebrews is warning. In the last days, people are going to become self-focused. And when they do, this isn't going to be important to them. And they're going to be about themselves. The joint is not going to be significant to them. And so, unless they can find a church where it's all about you and pampering you, they'll just stay home. And they won't tolerate churches that are about the joint. So what's the answer? Let the joint be lifted up. <laughs> Lift up the joint. Because that's where you become more than you can ever be by yourself. Hallelujah.